Thanks, Greg. If you have a Bible, open it to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. Have you ever known a farmer? And I don't mean I don't mean somebody that lives out in the country or somebody that has chickens, like urban, you know. Oh, I've got I've got one raised flower bed and some chickens, so I'm an urban farmer, right? Have you ever met people like that? I'm talking about like a legitimate, real farmer. Raise your hand if you've known a real farmer. And even farms, like out here, you know, somebody has like a big field. But I remember one time seeing at a farmhouse in South Dakota. And it literally was corn as far as the eye could see. I thought that was only in movies. It turns out that's real. But my great-grandfather was a farmer. He had a great name. His name was Orville Wilder. What a great name for a farmer. And my uncle one time told me that, that my grandpa, and I'm the only one out of all of his great-grandchildren, I'm the only one that's really old enough to remember him. Uh, one of my brothers kind of does, but, but everyone else, my, my youngest brother, my cousins, they're, they don't really remember. But my, my uncle and I were talking about him one time, and he said, you know, the best thing that your grandpa Orville could say about another farmer was that they plowed in a straight line. That was his highest compliment. They plowed in a straight line. Because my, my grandfather was not, um, a rich man. I mean, he had, he had, um, all kinds of different ventures going on. He had livestock. Uh, for a while, he, he, around World War II, he got into cranberry bogging and, uh, and sold cranberries to ocean spray. And so he was, he was all kinds of different farming endeavors. But to him, Wasting and not being efficient as a farmer was the worst thing you could do. So he said, if you plowed in a straight line, if you got the rows exactly right, if you, if you spread the, the seed for the corn and for the uh, vegetables, if you got that exactly right, then you were a good farmer. I don't know what my great-grandfather would have made of this story here, but this morning we're going to look at a farmer who was terrible at how he spread it, it just everywhere. So let's read here. Chapter 4, the Gospel of Mark. It says, again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd gathered around him. It was so large that he got into a boat and sat out on the lake while all the people along the shore uh, were along the shore at the water's edge, and he taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching, he said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came up and ate it. Some fell on the rocky places where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly But because the soil was shallow. When the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil, and it came up, and it grew and produced a crop, multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears, let them hear. And when he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked about the parables. 
And he told them, the secret of the kingdom has been, of God has been given to you, but those who are outside, everything is in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but not perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. And some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. And as soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others are like seed sown on rocky places. They hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. And when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like the seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100, what was sown. So it says that Jesus spoke in parables. If you're filling in your notes, a parable, verse 2, a parable is a story that was used to illustrate a lesson. A parable was a story that was used to illustrate a lesson. And Jesus had a large crowd of people gathered to hear him. And so he spoke to them in a way that would have made sense to them. Because everyone in that culture, on some level, was a farmer. You could be the town mayor, but you still had to grow your own food. You could be a fisherman, but I guarantee that when you went home, there was a small, kind of at least a kitchen garden. You'd catch your fish, you'd eat what you wanted, you'd sell the rest, but there was still some kind of small, uh, at least a kitchen-level garden so you could grow herbs and spices, uh, you know, sustenance, and, and everyone there knew about farming. And even for us, like, so my grandma grew up a farmer's daughter. In fact, I've seen this. If you get the old family tree out... The old family tree, if you go back far enough and then you go down a different branch of the Wilder farming family, you find a fellow named Almanzo Wilder. Almanzo Wilder married a gal named Laura Ingalls. Anyone read those books? I, I love, there's a, a thing I read a few years ago. Uh, so, so Almanzo Wilder is, if I remember this correctly, it's been about 20 years since I've seen this, but he was my eighth cousin twice removed. And so Laura Ingalls Wilder is my eighth cousin twice removed by marriage. Yeah. But the TV show, there was a TV show back in the day about Little House on the Prairie. And Pa was like the best guy. He always did the right thing. But then you read the books and it said like, you know, Pa, pa got into trouble with somebody and he took the family out of town in the middle of the night. Like a little bit different when you read the books. But everyone in that day, whether you were a banker or a grocer, 
were a farmer, you all knew about farming. We don't live in that time anymore. My, my grandmother grew up on the farm, but then she married a city kid. And my grandpa was a teacher and an officer in the army. He had no farming experience. And his family going back, uh, my, my grandfather was a uh, first generation American. My great grandfather on that, on the Dalhannock side was an immigrant from Europe. And they were city folk. Vienna and Prague, and they were not from the farms. But on my grandma's side, everyone knew about farming. And then my uncle uh, told, has told me stories about him and my dad and uh, brother and sister going up to the farm, you know, growing up in, in the heart of Seattle in the 60s, and then they go up to the farm, and like my great-grandma's like, oh, my grandkids are idiots because they don't know how to do anything on the farm, you know? And... Uh, <laughs> I think I've told this story here, right, about how my dad touched the electric fence because he didn't know, like, that if you took a metal pole and touched an electric fence, it would still shock you. Jesus, I believe this, Jesus would have spoken differently to my grandpa Orville and his culture than he would have to my father and his culture, even though they were the same, you know, it was still 1965 or whatever, they were in the same state. They only lived an hour apart from each other. But my grandfather lived in the country and he was a farmer surrounded by farmers. My, my dad, he, he grew up in the city and he was a city kid surrounded by other city kids. Jesus spoke to them in using stories that they would have totally understood. Um, earlier, Matt was talking about one of his kids is, is going through finals in, in college, and you know he's, he's learning how to code in C++. And some of you are going, what's that? Because if you don't live in the world of software engineers, you're not going to know about you know, Fortran and C++ and these different coding languages that exist. But if Jesus, I believe... If Jesus were to be walking along down in the Silicon Valley, he would speak in terms that software engineers would understand. And if he were walking along here in Oregon, he would speak differently than if he was walking down the streets of Singapore. Not just language, but cultural experience. The parable was a story that illustrated a lesson, but if you tell somebody a story that they have no context for, how's that going to help them? See, God is speaking. I believe God's still speaking to people. And we're God's hands and feet on earth. And in some ways, if you can receive it, you are the voice of God in your office, in your school, in your living room, at your family reunion, wherever you're at, you might be the voice that God is using to speak to people. The challenge is figuring out how do we speak in a way that connects so that people understand. I don't think there, I think this is an art more than a science. I I do know this, that when my kids are a certain age, the younger they are, I don't, like when, when, Colton, when Colton was three years old, I didn't show him Star Wars. He was just young. He watched Thomas. 
And we, Angie and I, miss Thomas. We were talking about that recently. We miss Thomas. We wish that we wish that Thomas, the tank engine, was still something they watched, right? And you go on my Facebook, you see this video I posted the other day. It was from when Colton was like two or three, and he's just so excited because he had this new Thomas toy. So there was a point in which I engaged with him where he was at, and now that Colton's a little bit older, you know, sometimes he just has to come along and do things that I'm interested in. That's just the way it is. And, and so, hey, I'm, I'm going to go, I have, I have to go run these errands. Well, why do I have to come? Because you're seven. <laughs> you're coming. But then there's going to be a shift. It's almost like a, a reverse bell curve. But there's going to be a shift where at some point, he's not going to be seven anymore. And at, when he's 17, 18, 19, 20, if I want to connect with my son, I'm going to have to connect with him where he's at. Does that make sense? That, that I won't be able to say, hey, you're 21, so you're coming, you're coming with me to run these errands. It's not going to work. So there is a difference between, let's say, for example, that you, uh, you have all kinds of life skills built up. It's amazing how many people don't know how to be functional human beings on this planet. That you find people that literally do not know how to grocery shop for themselves. That's a life skill, and they don't have it. I would, I would bet that if you have certain life skills, there are people that want to know how to do those things. If you know how to, like, uh, my, my grandma on the farm... She had this whole like side hustle because they didn't have Uber back then to side hustle. So her side hustle was canning things. And so she had a sign out on the road and you know, you could drive by and you could buy canned preserves and vegetables or whatever from her. And she had a good reputation in the county. So people would say, hey, you go over to see Elsie. I would imagine that if she were to say, hey, I'm going to do a life skills class in the church, and I'm just going to, you know, show anyone that wants to know how to do some basic things like canning, pickling, you know, doing these basic things. There are people that would go, yeah, I never learned how to do like anything. I just know how to go to buy the frozen food stuff and put it in the microwave. There's a difference between that and saying, my grandma also loved to quilt, and and we still have a couple of her old quilts around, you know, but saying we're going to do a, a sewing circle, and that's going to be our women's ministry. And there's this whole section of, of gals who go, yeah, I'm not, it's not what I'm interested in. Is there any other women's ministry options? See what I'm saying? There's a difference between in saying, this is what I'm interested in, and that's how I'm going to speak to you, versus saying, this is something I think there's a connection point. It's, it's one thing to say, I want to speak truth, yes, but what good is it if I don't speak in a way that people can understand? And sometimes that means that we have to get out of our Christian culture. Because if you start talking to somebody who has no church background and, and say, oh, you know, have you seen this Christian movie? No, they probably haven't. Have you read this Christian book? They probably haven't. But the truth that's in there can still be brought it's learning how to speak the language. Now, here's the thing. Remember in the book of Acts, 
where the first Christians were gathered in that room and the Holy Spirit descended and all of a sudden they started speaking and praising God in languages that they didn't know. But there were people from all over the Roman world in Jerusalem for a feast and they heard people praising God in their own language. If God can do that, then how much easier is it going to be for God to show you or me how I can speak to the people he's given me to speak to in a way that will connect with them? I trust God to be God in your life and in my life. And so we have this awareness that Jesus is speaking to them using stories that are meant to make a point, to teach a lesson, but he's, he's speaking to them in a way that they would understand. And whether it is coworkers, neighbors, your kids or your grandkids, whoever the people are that God has given you and me to speak to, I trust that God's going to give us the wisdom and how to speak to these things. So Jesus shares this parable about a farmer who just sows the seed wherever. I would imagine that this farmer has a big bag draped across his shoulder. This bag is full of seed, and he's just grabbing handfuls, and instead of dropping it where it's been plowed, where the soil is ready, he is just going everywhere. But there's a reason why. Why did Jesus use parables? In verse 9, he says, Whoever has ears, whoever has ears, let them hear. Jesus makes an invitation. He knows that some people are going to respond, and he wants them to respond. Ultimately, this is something the Lord's been speaking to me about lately. The, the idea that I can share about my faith and be passive and then in the end of the day not really have shared about my faith. One of the um, opportunities that God has given me just where I'm at in my life is to go to kids' birthday parties. And whether it's Pietro's three weeks in a row last year, it's not that good, guys. I know some of you love Pietro's, and I'm just going to forgive you, okay? But whether it's that or the park or some other thing, you know, I, somebody asked me about our church, and I, I gave what I think is a right answer everything, but there was a point where I thought, you know, did I actually give him an answer? Or did I just kind of say something bland and generic that wasn't going to offend anybody? Not that I'm trying to, I'm not trying to be a jerk or offensive. I'm just like, oh, this will be the thing they go, oh, okay, and then they'll, they'll move on. Jesus was looking for an invitation to say, come and see. Jesus said, if you have ears, hear and respond. Because he knew that some people would. Not everyone responded right away. When Jesus died, it, who was it? It wasn't the disciples. It was a guy we've never heard of. Joseph of Arimathea who comes and takes his body and buries it. Who was that guy? He never appeared anywhere before. There were people who heard Jesus' teaching and didn't respond right away. Can I say that as an encouragement? Don't give up. 
Don't give up praying. Don't give up caring. Don't give up sharing with that person that God has given you. Your son, your daughter, your brother, your sister, your parents. Don't give up. Because there were people that just showed up out of nowhere when Jesus died and rose again. You're like, where did this person come from? It just took him a little longer. But he also knows that some will not respond. Verse 11 and 12, Jesus says, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but those who are outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing and not perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. And there have been some who have thought that what this means is that Jesus was purposely trying to confuse people. Like he's trying to be very mysterious and elusive and then only the special people, Jesus goes and explains it to them. I don't believe that's what's going on here because why would Jesus give an invitation to respond if he knows nobody's going to understand what he's saying? I think the parables serve two purposes. The parables attract those who God wanted. The parables attract those who God wanted. That, that God is speaking in a way to cause people to go, wait, what? I'd never thought of it that way before. Maybe to ask questions like the disciples did. Maybe to, to stir like, oh, there's something different about this Jesus thing. So the, the parables attract those who wanted God, but they delay those who oppose God. The parables delay those who oppose God. Because if you're opposed to God, you're not trying to live in God's will. I'm not opposed to God. I want God's will in my life. And I have a hard enough time as it is living in God's will. Because I don't want to be patient. God has his timing and I have mine. And I don't always want the two to be the same thing. But imagine if you are actively opposed to God like the Pharisees were. If you are actively opposed to the kingdom of heaven like the Romans were then you're not going to want to live on God's timeline. So what Jesus was actually doing was he wasn't saying things straightforward. Yes, I'm the Messiah. I'm the king of the Jews. I am here. I have come. Because there were people that tried to put Jesus on the throne, and he's like, that's not my time. And he would just kind of fade away. There were people that tried to kill Jesus, and he said, nope, it's not my time yet. This isn't the way. This isn't the way that God has for this. So he would just disappear, kind of fade out. So he's speaking in these parables to attract people who want God. But he's also trying to delay those who are opposed because they're not in line with God's will. And I think sometimes we go, God, why are you doing this? Why, why is this thing not happening? Why are you not working the, thing, the way that I want you to work? And, and, and honestly, I think the Lord might just say to us, because there are people who are opposed to what I want to do. And if I don't work in this way that seems obscure to you, it's not going to happen the way it needs to happen. It's just my opinion, but that's what I see here. Plus, I have noticed this. The New Testament was written in Greek. I don't speak Greek, but the guys who do, who write about this sort of thing, none of them give the impression 
that Jesus is trying to be mysterious. He's just trying to kill two birds with one stone. And it's possible when you say, why is God doing something in my life? Is it this or that? Could be all of it. God is somehow attracting people to him while delaying those who are opposed to him. And then the disciples, and not just the disciples. We focus on the disciples. But it says the others around him. It wasn't just the disciples. It was the others. It wasn't just the 12 who got this secret special knowledge. It was anyone who wanted to follow Jesus, to be around Jesus. I don't believe that there's some secret thing that's hidden only to super Christians. That any of us, because there's no such thing as super Christians, any of us who want Jesus, who follow Jesus, he'll reveal stuff to us. Truth and love. And so these people say, hey, what was that thing about the sower all about? Because some of them do have ears. And in verse 13, he says, okay, you have to understand, if you don't understand this, then how can you understand any parable? So as we're starting, there are two main sections of parables in the Gospel of Mark. And if you go on faithonhill.com, that's our website, uh, we put a blog post up this week kind of talking about parables in the Bible. There are two main sections. We're kind of starting for the next couple weeks, the first main section, and then in the fall, we'll hit the second main section. But Jesus is saying, hey, there's going to be a bunch of parables coming up. And if you want to understand them, pay attention. So he says in verse 14, the farmer sows the word. I'm going to tell you that the sower is God. Sorry, the farmer or the sower is God. The one who is sowing the word of God, the good news of Jesus into our hearts is God himself. God is the one who is initiating in your life. And the word is the same Greek word in John's gospel, logos. The word, what does John say about the word? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. Jesus himself is that word, that seed being sown in our hearts. So the sower is God. The word is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And you might think that this is only talking about people before they become Christians. You know, that, well, the rocky soil, that's my cousin Frank. And the thorny soil, uh, that's my best friend who lives down the street. I've known her since childhood, but that's, that's that person. Yes, but this could also be talking to believers. Hold with that for a minute. So first is the hard soil. I don't know um, if you've ever been to the corn maze. Who's been to a corn maze? Let's, let's just, everybody just wake up, raise your hands. You've been to a corn maze. Okay. Most of us in this room have been to a corn maze. Going to a corn maze in Oregon is very, very different from going to a corn maze in California. So I was a youth pastor in Washington state and I was a youth pastor in California. And when I was a youth pastor in California and we went to the corn maze every October, I had to bring extra water, extra sunscreen, because it could be 90 degrees and sunny outside in the middle of October and you have kids that are getting, you know, dehydration and heat stroke 
There's always one kid every year who was like, what were you thinking? You, you're, you're dressed like it's January and we're going to the corn maze in October. What's going on? I remember one guy, he, he was, oh, I'm so hot. And he takes his water and he dumps it all over his head. And then 10 minutes later, I'm so thirsty. I dumped my water. What do I do? The prepared youth pastor has a backpack on with extra water in it. So I was like, all right, I'm going to teach you a life skill right now. Don't dump it on your head. That doesn't help you at all. Take little sips as you go along, and that way you'll stay hydrated. But when you go through a corn maze in California, the soil is so compacted down that it feels like concrete because people have gone back and forth pounding it down for a good month at this point, and it's hot, and it's hard, and it's unyielding. And you could dump as many seeds as you want on that soil. Nothing's getting through there. And there are people that are like that. That it does not matter how much, you know, every, every year on their birthday, I send them a card with, with, uh, and I send them a, a, a Christian book. I, I, every year I, I send them, you know, free this. I do whatever I can do. I, I post things on their Facebook wall. I do whatever I can do. And it doesn't matter. They are so hardened to God that nothing is getting through. And it says that, that Satan comes and takes that seed away. It can't get through and it doesn't just stay there. The enemy comes and takes it away. This hard soil is not going to take the seed no matter what. Now here's the good news. That many of us in this room would say, at some point in my life, I was that person. And yet you're here now. Amen? Like I said a minute ago, don't give up. Because do you know that when, when the Bible talks about the power of the Holy Spirit, the, the word for power is the Greek word dunamo. That's where we get our word dynamite from. If you want to break up hard soil, I don't recommend that you do this. But dynamite will do it. That God has the ability to break through the hardest soil. And just because somebody is hard right now, it doesn't mean that God can't break it up. Now, that being said, hard soil, resistant soil, it doesn't start out that way. It happens over time. And if you have a heart that's hardening towards the gospel, there may come a point where it's too late, where you have so firmly hardened your heart that God says, fine, I'm going to give you what you want. If you read... The Old Testament, the story of Moses and Pharaoh. And Moses was this guy that God had sent to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. And Pharaoh was the king of Egypt and he had God's people enslaved. And over and over again, God says, let my people go. And it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. It said, no. And then finally, on the last time, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God gave him what he wanted. You want a hard heart? Fine. I'm going to give you that. Well, I'll deal with God when I'm older. Or I'll deal with God after I've done this thing or that thing. It may 
not be possible. It may be that a person hardens their heart so much that they won't have that chance later on to deal with God. May it never be. Verse 16 and 17, Jesus then talks about the rocky soil. Some of our translations might call it the shallow soil. It's amazing to me that plants can grow in all kinds of places, right? That you could be like the sheer concrete wall of a large hydroelectric dam, right? And then there's a little, a little flower, a little blade of grass, something sticking out of a, a crack in the concrete. Because just a little bit, and that seed has something to work with. But it doesn't take much to kill those things because they have no firm root. And then if you've ever tried to like take a bush or something out, you know, take a stump out, and then you're like, man, these roots go forever because that thing is firm and deep and established. There are people, and if you've been a Christian long enough, you've seen this. They hear the word of God, they respond with joy, and there's no depth. And the moment the sun comes out, boom, they're fried to a crisp. If there's no depth, the seed won't grow. But here's the thing. This one and the next one, the thorny soil, both of them have the seed and there is a response. That's a frightening thing. That I could respond with faith and it's a legitimate response and there's something that grows, but it gets choked out. One of the most common questions asked throughout all of the history of the Christian faith is if a person has faith in God and is saved from their sins, can they lose that salvation? I want to be generous and say that there are a lot of different opinions about this over the years. And if you have a different opinion than what I'm about to share, don't feel like you're not welcomed here, right? Because much smarter women and men than I, than I am have wrestled with this over the centuries. But I'll say this. I believe that I am secure in the love of God. I don't believe that God is sitting there going, Adam got really mad when that lady flipped him off in Damascus on Friday. True story. <laughs> she did. Twice. Adam got really mad at her. I don't know if he's making it into heaven right now. He better be extra good the rest of the day. I don't believe that. I was, I was talking with, uh, uh, actually it was with Superintendent Randy, and he was telling me he had an uncle who literally believed that if you were driving from here to Boise down 84, and you might be going a little faster than the law allowed down Highway 84, that you would then sin and you didn't know for sure if you were going to heaven or not. So you better repent. I don't believe that at all. I believe that God's love for me is secure. His love for you is secure. At the same time, I recognize that there are passages like right here where it talks about the seed growing and 
bursting forth and responding and then being choked out. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus talks about names being removed from the book of life. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about those who have tasted the grace of God and then rejected it. So I believe firmly in the security of your salvation and my salvation as long as I'm abiding in Christ. And if you're abiding in Christ and I'm abiding in Christ, I trust in him and his work. But I also want to, with reverence and in a, in a sense of a holy fear, acknowledge that just because I prayed a prayer at camp one summer or just because I, I went forward during a time of response then that's it, one and done. I'm good. Once saved, always saved. I don't think that's in the Bible. Jesus' love for me, Jesus' mercy for me, Jesus' work in my life, I trust in fully. But I don't want to delude myself or someone else to think that then I could go and live however I want and do whatever I want and thumb my, my nose at God and say, whatever, I'm just going to do my thing because you have to forgive me. I don't know that that's true. The rocky soil can't grow the seed because there's no depth. The thorny soil is actually good soil. The seed can grow there. But the thorns, the cares of this life, the deceit of riches, the worries of this world choke out the seed of the gospel. We... We're the world's 1%. You know that thing that was a big thing like, you know, we're the 99% that go protest and, and sit in Wall Street or whatever. There was a certain irony to that whole thing that was going on because all of those kids that were sitting there driving their cars, if you own a car, if you own a car, you are one of the 5% wealthiest people in the entire world. And there they are, the 5% of the world. We have to understand that when Jesus talks about it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, that compared to the rest of the world, we are all rich men and women. And the deceitfulness of wealth and the cares of this world can easily choke out the word of God in our lives. My friend, Pastor Ed, over at our sister church in Oregon City, uh, he, he, he turned a phrase I thought was pretty good. He said, maybe you don't need a new basement. Maybe you need a basement. All right. A basement's this old word. It means basically being humbled. It's bad, I know. But you guys know that I love dad jokes, right? And that's a good one, even though it's horrible. But this idea of saying, I am totally focused on me. And maybe I'm not totally focused on me. Maybe my, my wife and my kids are included in that. But everything is focused on me as opposed to focused on what's God doing. And I can have the gospel choked out in my life because the thorns grow, because I don't get depth. There's a video going around uh, Facebook and YouTube, and it's actually my dad's boss. My dad works for Faith Life, and they do a lot of like uh, church software. 
uh, Bible study software. And this guy uh, who runs Faith Life, they did research because their, their flagship product is Logos Bible study software. And they did research and they said, if somebody reads the Bible once a week, it doesn't really register on whether, you know, is their life any different? Twice a week, we thought, well, if you double it, there's going to be a linear increase. Nope, still doesn't register. Three times a week, nope, still doesn't register. Four times a week, boom, there's a huge difference. Now, do I, am I legalistic? Like, oh, you didn't read your Bible four times this week. God doesn't love you. No. But what their research was showing was that when somebody was serious about the disciplines of the Christian faith, about studying God's word, about prayer, about being connected with uh, Christians and fellowship and community, when those things were serious in somebody's life, there was a direct correspondence into the response they were giving in this research. I, I don't think our, our, the condition of our lives, the soil of our lives is a static thing. It never changes. I think we can bring depth the weeds can be pulled out. If, if you want to grow in your Christian faith, you need more of the gospel. The gospel isn't just for people that don't believe yet. If, if I know that I, oh, I'm just not as kind as I should be. I know that there's this area in my life that needs to change. I know that there is this weed that's choking out faith in my life. It's not by trying harder or being better, but by having more of the seed of the good news of Jesus in my life. More Jesus, and then he's going to do the work. More Jesus, and he's going to make the change. Christians, born-again Christians, need the gospel just as much as non-Christians. Because I'll start believing the lies of false religion and of my own good works, and that will then cause that soil to shrink, that thorns to choke out. But the good soil is transformed. The good soil is changed. And God's work in our lives is ongoing and powerful. Do you know what's encouraging to me as the band comes up? You know what's encouraging to me? Is that the farmer is not plowing the straight lines. He is just throwing the seed, the word of God, the gospel. He's just throwing it everywhere. Generously. And God's work in your life and my life is generous and abundant. So have faith. God's working God's moving. The question now is how do you respond? The seed of the gospel is in your life. How do you respond to it? And this morning, you know, Christian worship is not just singing songs. Christian worship is not just hearing the word of God. But this morning through prayer, maybe God wants to do a work in your heart. Maybe God's been speaking to you and you need to respond and you don't sing a single word of any song, but you just pray and ask God to do his work in your life. Maybe this morning it's an act of faith through giving. Maybe it's an act of faith through singing loudly. But as we respond to God, I believe God's wanting to work in us. Let's worship God together.